welcome to Church of the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to be here together. Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds and our ears to what you have to tell us. Lord, may we leave here different than when we came in by your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Good morning. That was awful. Good morning. Good morning. Um, If you're new, welcome. My name is Kevin. I'm the lead pastor of Church at the Well. I'm excited that you're here. You're stepping into the beginning of kind of a series that we started. So at Church at the Well, we basically just preach through books of the Bible. So we've been preaching through the book of Hebrews. We're starting chapter two, and I'll kind of catch you up a little bit. So we've called this series The Greatest The concept behind the author of Hebrews is basically saying that Jesus is supreme and superior over all things. And just saying that is pretty simple, but the aspect of attempting to do it in our lives personally is very difficult. And so the the author of Hebrews has been challenging us over these last few weeks to look at our hearts, to address the things that we're placing above Jesus, and what are we seeing that in our lives that are supreme over him or that we're making supreme and then trying to make the argument that it's basically a waste of time. And so the last few weeks we've been talking about angels, which is pretty crazy. Um, And we're taking everything that we talked about with these angels where the author of Hebrews is saying we understand that Jesus is greater than angels and the purpose of that for us was to help us understand that Jesus is greater than spirituality. So whatever it is that you have in your life that you believe to be spiritual, Jesus is better than that. And then we come to kind of this conclusion, and I'm ready to dive in. So if you can turn in your Bibles to to Hebrews chapter 2, it begins with the word therefore. And the reason I wanted to kind of give you um, kind of some background is because when we see in Scripture the word therefore, it should cause us to move back a little bit. Therefore is a word that kind of concludes something. It's this has happened, therefore this is the result. And so I tell people all the time, when you're studying scripture or you're reading scripture and you see the word therefore, if you write in your Bible, circle it. It should draw some attention. So it begins, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. It's an interesting passage. So the conclusion or the therefore of everything that we've talked about the last few weeks comes down to this one little statement. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Culture is interesting. And when we moved to Boston 12 years ago, one of the things that I learned very quickly is that Boston is going to encourage everything in my life that I typically don't want to be doing, (laughs) right? 
It's gonna enhance everything. So it takes all of, all of your weaknesses, like whatever that is, everybody has them. So I, I, I call them fatal flaws. Every single person on this planet has fatal flaws. The fatal flaw is my terminology around that thing that it just seems like you struggle getting over. It exists, right? So it could be anything. I don't know what it is for you. It, it's different for everyone, but it seems like you keep coming back to maybe a sin or an issue in your life, and it seems to resurface over and over and over, and there'll be moments where maybe you think that you've won over this thing, and then all of a sudden it rears its ugly little head back, and you're like, how is it that this keeps coming back? Those are our fatal flaws. In a, in a culture like Boston, it will not only enhance your fatal flaws, but it will typically encourage you to engage them and become something that, as a Christ follower, you don't desire to become. And so in a place like this where there's so much diversity, there's so much different ways of thinking, coming out of kind of a postmodern culture where truth was being examined and we've kind of settled in our culture that, okay, well, there is no truth from an outside and whatever's true for you is true for you, whatever's true for me is true for me. And as a result of that, we find ourselves in a situation where it's challenging. It's, it's hard to have discussion even. It's hard to have good dialogue with individuals because at some point anybody can just say, well, that's great for you, but for me it's this and this is my truth. And over time, as you engage this culture, you can find that your mind begins to shift a little bit. Things that maybe you said you would never participate in all of a sudden don't seem as bad as they used to be. You start saying things that you never anticipated yourself saying. Your, your thinking is changing, and the scriptures would say that what this is for a Christ follower is this word drift. We have to pay attention because it's easy for us to drift. This word drift in scripture, it's a nautical term. Now, I'm not a captain, and I don't know a whole lot about the sea, but I do know that when I go to the beach, so everybody knows I love Mexico and I love the Caribbean, Right? So we go to the beach and I get in the waves and I'm out swimming in the ocean. There's moments where I'm like, okay, I see my, my party. They're like right there and I'm directly across from them in the ocean. And then I'm playing and acting like a little kid and doing whatever it is that I do in the ocean. And pretty soon I look up and I can't find them directly in front of me. They're over there. And I didn't even know that it happened. I'm just all of a sudden like, wait, I've just been playing and not really paying attention and it didn't feel like I was drifting, but all of a sudden I'm here and they're over there because the currents and the ocean have slowly just moved me over, right? And I know if you like boats, which I mean, I do like boats, but you'll find that oftentimes when you're navigating somewhere, this can happen. It's I'm trying to keep a straight course and the ocean is against me, but it moves slow because there, maybe there's no storm and it's pushing me to the right and yet I don't even know that I'm going off course. So this idea of drift, it's something that's happening slowly. It's something that's happening so, so much under the radar that maybe you don't even know that it's occurring. It's just slowly kind of chipping away slowly veering you off course to the point where you don't even recognize it as it's happening. 
And then what ends up happening is you find yourself so off course and you're going, how in the world did I get here? Typically, we say that most Christ followers, when they're going to fall into something that they don't want to do or something that's going to be displeasing to the faith that they're claiming, it's usually a slow fade. It's not usually like this one major decision that's going to take you down. It's the decisions before that. It's the decisions to say, I'm gonna compromise just a little bit, and it, typically we have the ability to justify those things, and sometimes they can be justified in a very good way. I've had moments where I've just tempted to justify things doing ministry and putting myself in situations and then realizing, whoa, that was a huge mistake. The scriptures are talking about this fade, this drift, and I think whether you've grown up in church world, whether you know who Jesus is or not, you can actually see this in your life. We say often the thing that we hear the most about Christ followers is that the world will say you're a bunch of hypocrites. And I say this often. Right? You, you, you claim to live one way and you don't live that way. You claim to love people, but I don't really see it. You claim that you're going to be like Jesus and you're not. And you'll hear things like, well, that wasn't very Christian, right? Or is that really what Jesus would do? Or is that really how Jesus would respond? And every time I get this complaint, well, I'll say, Kevin, my issue with the church is it's full of hypocrites. And my answer every time is the same. You're right. We're right. We are hypocrites. We claim that we're going to live one way, and oftentimes we don't. But then I remind them that they are too. Um, I don't know a single person that says they're going to live one way and doesn't. And you can make this really simple. Who in here is as fit as they want to be? Then <laughs> how many times have you rededicated your heart and your mind to get to where you want to be on that? I've been working on my doctorate and I wanted to graduate this, I don't know, next month. And I just kept saying, oh, it'll happen, it'll happen, it'll happen. For some reason, my dissertation isn't writing itself. And now I find myself in a situation where I'm pushing a semester. And I'm not gonna graduate till April. There's, there's this ability to easily make excuses for things. There's this ability where we say we're going to do something and circumstances come up and we don't do it. And, the reality is every human being is in the exact same boat. It, to claim that you don't like church because it's full of hypocrites is to claim that you don't like the human race. It's to put yourself in a situation where you're not even understanding who you actually are as a human being. The slow fade that happens is real. Relationships change typically slowly because of decisions, good and bad, right? Like, not every slow fade is negative. Sometimes they're positive, but the reality is most major things and changes that happen in our life happen slowly. And the author of Hebrews is warning us of this. So what's the solution? It begins with, therefore, we must pay much closer attention. I... I remember growing up in the church, and so I was in a youth group, and that doesn't really exist around here. A youth group is where like, high schoolers would come together and it looked kind of like 
church. Right? It was like pre-church church. We used to have youth group and then what we called big church. Right? And I remember being in youth group and I, I didn't really grasp the gospel. To me, it felt like a bunch of rules. It felt like basically I would come in at high school and just be made to feel guilty for all of the decisions that I had made that week. And I really wasn't that bad of a kid and I still felt that way. I wasn't really one that was getting in trouble a lot. And I remember listening to this list over and over and over and I thought, to be really honest, if this is what Christianity is, I don't know that I want a part of it. Like I don't, I don't wanna show up somewhere and just constantly feel bad about who I am. And I don't, I don't want this life where I show up at youth group and I pretend to be one person, but I know that like when I leave, I'm gonna go do something different. And so there was this struggle in me um, I think the reason that the author is reminding us to pay close attention is it's not just paying close attention to the individuals or the culture that's around us or the impact that it's making. It's also asking us to pay attention to what's going on inside of us. I, some of you have church hurt. It's fair, right? To, to believe that a church is perfect is absurd. Basically, all a church is is a group of dirty, rotten sinners that are basically saying Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I say every week, we're sin-cursed bodies living in a sin-cursed world, and we're messed up. So to expect to come into any group of people, including a church, and say this is going to be perfect is crazy, right? But we hold these expectations. Oftentimes what I've found is we hold expectations for others that we don't even hold to ourselves. Like I, I was processing as I was studying this specific passage saying we need to pay attention is basically my, my words around it. And what I realized is that there are moments where I'm not paying attention to my own heart and my own life, but I'm definitely paying attention to those who are around me. And oftentimes my answer is, well, if they would just, if they would just pay more attention, if they would just be more aware, if they would just do this, then I wouldn't respond that way. It's like, you know, I'll do marriage counseling and one of, somebody will say, they make me so angry. And I'm like, nobody can make you angry. Nobody can make you do anything. We make choices, we do those things. It's this attempt to say, I'm gonna blame it on everyone else. And what this is doing, it's also a nautical term, believe it or not, it's, it's describing this pay much closer attention in nautical terms that are saying we need to be on course or we need to be anchored into something that helps us truly understand who we are and who Jesus is. The, the greatest lie that we can say to ourselves is, I'm good. I'm good. Like, everything's good. If you guys have ever lived in the South, when I go down there, oftentimes I'll hear, you know, it's like, hey, how's it going? I'm great. How are you? Great. All right, moving on. Right? It's just like how they say hello. Right? And I remember the first time I experienced it, I was like, wow, that's really bizarre. <laughs> 
Like, how are you? Great. Really? You look terrible. <laughs> like, you're crying. <laughs> you can't be great. There's, there's this thing in us. It's like, and what I've learned is that culture, what it taught me, and I wasn't even there very long. I could just, be, maybe I'm speaking at a church or whatever, and I see somebody crying, and they're like, oh, I'm great. And I'm like, oh, good. And then I go, off I go. Because <laughs> that's what you're supposed to do. There's this ability that we have to lie to our own hearts, to make decisions that aren't great, to blame other people, and to not really evaluate what it is that we're anchoring ourselves into. And like the passage says, if that anchor isn't grounded in something that's going to hold us firm, then we're gonna drift. I think if you're in a place right now where you're going, I don't know how I got where I am, then all that says, and all the author of Hebrews be saying is, you've drifted. You've drifted. It wasn't, you know, he's like, well, how did I get here? Well, it wasn't that decision, it was the 50 before. You've drifted. Well, what do I do? Well. We need to go back and pay attention and anchor ourselves back into what we're saying we believe. And when we do that, then the decisions that we begin to make will actually draw us closer to that anchor and closer in the direction that we wanna go than farther away. It's fascinating that he begins this way because the rest of this passage to me is like a major celebration of who Jesus is in the gospel. But I think he warns us in this one, in this first verse in chapter two, because just the ability to celebrate who Jesus is doesn't mean that he's actually impacting our lives on a daily basis. We sang some worship songs, and every, both of those songs that we sang today, it was just pure gospel, right? Um, you can listen to like great Christian music that has good lyrics and it's scriptural, it's biblical, it's, it's strong doctrine, and you can rock out to it and you can be cleaning your house or whatever it is and you're just going, 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 but it doesn't mean that you're actually believing what you're singing. It doesn't mean that you're living out the words that you're proclaiming. Oftentimes I struggle singing these songs because it's a desire of my heart, but it's not the reality of my life. Lord, I love you more than anything else. Do I really? I want to, but I know that there's moments where I put something above him because I've drifted. So I think as we dive into the celebration of the gospel, what I really wanted to hit home is two things. One, if you're, if you're here and you've never come to faith in Christ or you're just trying to figure out what this Jesus thing is or why do people even show up at a place like this on a Sunday? What's the point? Like how weird is it that you just show up and sing together? How weird is that? How weird is it that you join these little small groups and like talk about life? What do you mean do life together? That's awkward. I don't even know these people, right? It is, it's bizarre at times. But what I want you to hear is, we're just like you. 
We're messed up, dirty, rotten sinners, constantly struggling with the same stuff that you struggle with. But we believe that the anchor to solving those problems is in Christ because He's supreme. And He's superior. And when we find ourselves leaning into Him, things do change. Life changes. My heart changes. The way I interact with people changes. But I still fight. For those of you who are here and maybe you've been a Christ follower for a while, you'll often hear me say, if you listen, that comfortability or complacency is the enemy of Christianity. There's no such thing as a complacent Christ follower. All it means is you've drifted. Because every morning, the Christ follower's goal is to wake up, thank the Lord for the breath that He's given in our lungs, by His grace, ask that He allow us to glorify Jesus in all that we do that day, and hope that we go to bed that night knowing Jesus better than when we woke up this morning. That's the goal of the Christ follower. And sometimes it's successful. And sometimes I feel like I took a step backwards. Um, it only takes driving in Boston for five minutes <laughs> to sit on your bed and regret the things that you did that day. <laughs> right? Oh man, I feel so bad for that kid on that bike. Anyway, that's another story. So, what are you grounded in? Uh, tomorrow I'm doing a wedding. Right? Ooh, yeah, awesome stuff. And what I tell, and I say, there's, when you're a pastor and you do a lot of weddings, so I came from a really large church in California, and I felt like I did weddings every weekend. It was insane. And what I found is I say a lot of the same things because this is just, I'm going off on an aside here for a second, just bear with me. If you ever do a wedding, don't make it up on the spot. <laughs> you always read a wedding, okay? Because it's on video and they're gonna watch it forever. And if you say something really dumb, <laughs> it's grounded in, for posterity forever, right? Every wedding I say, some things that are very similar, just in advice to the couple that's getting married. And one of the things I tell them is that the secret, the overall secret to a successful godly marriage is that Jesus is the most important thing in the marriage. Like my wife knows that if I start treating her, which I hope I don't, but if I ever start treating her poorly, that the problem probably isn't her, the problem is probably me. And that it's my relationship with the Lord that may be struggling. So typically at weddings, what I'll say is you're gonna have these moments where you're gonna fight and you're gonna argue and it's gonna be frustrating and it's gonna be hard. But if your anchor is Jesus, then you always have something to come back to that's common ground that never changes. Now, that's great advice. Not every couple does it that way. Which means, but every couple has to find something that grounds them. The problem is, scriptures remind us that the only thing that doesn't ever change is Christ. 
which means that oftentimes individuals will get married, they're grounding on something that isn't rock solid, and even what they think that they're grounded in drifts and changes. And so what do you have to come back to? It works that way in life for everything. If Jesus isn't the anchor, then it's going to change. Because the one thing we can learn about life is that everything changes. Last week we talked about the fact that God is, immu- is he has this characteristic of immu- immunability where he never changes. When he says something, it's always true. That's what makes him a good anchor. A terrible anchor is anchoring into something that's gonna cause you to move because that's not the point. So this is my question, what's your anchor? What are you anchoring to? What are you placing your hope in? All right, with all of that, let's move on. Verse two, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Everyone wants to know at some point when they walk into any church, what are you saying I need to do to get saved? Everyone wants to know. Outside of Jesus, I'm going to give you the answer. It doesn't matter what religious belief system you walk into. It doesn't matter. You pick one. Your favorite. Your least favorite. Whatever it is. If it's not Christ, then it's always something else. And always something else is you have to do something. It's grounded on your behavior. It's grounded on you doing works, you accomplishing something, you achieving something, you reaching a particular level. This idea of kind of scales, well, as long as your life looks like you did more good than bad, then we're golden. That scares me to death. Like, I'm visual. I tell you oftentimes, let's, let's take a look at the movie version. Like, I picture in that kind of a faith system, showing up in heaven, looking at Jesus, and he's like, Kevin, if you had done one more good deed, you were in. And I'm like, ah, that's terrible. That stinking kid on the bike <laughs> thwarted me. Like, I don't, there's no hope in that type of a system. There's no hope in attempting to say, if you're good enough, it's good, because it's good by who? We can't even agree oftentimes in our culture what's good and what's not. Literally, people be like, that's really good, and I'm going, ugh, that's not good. It's it's bad, actually. It's the exact opposite of good. So if, if it's all boiled down to what's good and what's bad, and we don't have any definition of what's good or what's bad, we're all very much in trouble. And there is no assurance whatsoever. There's, there's no hope. There's no hope in a system. It, it's like, I, I'm, I am the worst mathematician on the planet. That is not my thing. I don't math, okay? <laughs> Amen, yes. There's my non-mathers. Um, but I can't imagine my math actually being a solution to anyone's problem. Because oftentimes, like I would watch, like I'd be sitting in class and I'm watching two students argue over if this is the answer or this is the answer. And I'm sitting back going, I don't got either one of those. <laughs> but probably one of you is correct, right? So I don't, I don't participate in the conversation because I'm like, I'm way off. You got two, I'm at 2,574. <laughs> I can't. 
But imagine a world where two plus two doesn't equal four. Two plus two equals whatever you decide it equals. Society crumbles. We have, there's so much. I mean, we have at the coffee house POS systems, and fortunately they math for us, right? But can you imagine like hitting it and it's like, well, every time I hit this same button that's supposed to add up two things, it's going to be different each time. I don't want to go to that place, right? Why is my drink $200 today? <laughs> it's a coffee, right? But if you can like pro- try to process taking a system that is not grounded, that is not detailed, that is based on an individual who knows that they're constantly drifting, and it's the, the salvation of who you are and your hope is gonna be grounded in something that is constantly changing and dependent upon you fully. Who wants in? It's, it's crazy, but we're Americans. And as Americans, we believe we can do it. We're taught at a young age that you can be anything that you want. You could be that. What a lie. (laughs) Right? You can do anything that you want to do. Really? Says the four foot two kid who wants to be a linebacker. Right? What this passage is saying is, I'm going to read it again, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? <coughs> he's going back to angels for a second, and what he's saying is, and we talked about this a lot, angels are there to deliver messages from the Lord. Angels are there to provide some insight. They don't make it up. They don't have that ability. It's just, here's the message, go deliver it. And we've talked about what that looked like, right? The individuals are like, I want to see an angel. I'm like, no, you don't because they're scary and you'll hit the ground. They deliver the message from the Lord. This is the way to salvation. And ultimately the gospel says, it's not on you. You're too much of a mess to be able to handle any of this. You'll blow it. And I go, you're right. I will. Because I blow it all the time. They ultimately say, look, if because Jesus is going to come and live the life that you were supposed to live that you couldn't, no matter what you believe about Jesus, like we're past the individuals who say, well, Jesus was a person who never existed. He's just a fairy tale. If that is still something you're saying, I need you to read a book, okay? Because that's so far beyond at this point. Jesus is recorded in, in ancient history that's outside of scripture. We know that the person of Jesus existed. And when we get to that place, Jesus existed. I've never had anyone say to me, that Jesus was a punk. Everybody wants to classify him as, well, he seemed to be a good guy. He seemed to be somebody who did good. People liked him. Not really, they killed him. 
He seemed to do good. He seemed to love people. He seemed to be this individual who was, you know, cared about people above himself, so on and so forth. And we kind of create this picture of a Jesus that I then saw in my youth group growing up where it was this white-haired, this white guy who's blonde hair and blue-eyed, and he's always around sheep (laughs) and little kids. And I'm like, well, first he wasn't white. And he didn't have blue eyes. And I have no idea if his hair was long, but what Scripture does tell us is that when we look at Jesus, he wasn't much to look at. Like he wasn't going to make the cover of Jewish Weekly. (laughs) Right? We get this picture of what we think that he is. The problem is that, yes, was Jesus a nice guy? Sure, was he, but he was so grounded in truth. He upset people enough that they said the only thing to do with this guy is to kill him horribly. He was so grounded in making sure that his message was heard and heard correctly that he didn't care who it insulted, he didn't care what buttons it pushed. He knew what his mission was and he was going to accomplish it. When the angels in the Old Testament were delivering messages, it was under what's called the Old Covenant. And one of the major mistakes that I think Christ followers make as they study Scripture is they want to separate the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's like, oh, it's like two different gods. This God seems to want to kill everybody in the Old Testament. This God seems to want to love everybody in the New Testament. Doesn't work that way. Same God. What's going on? In the Old Testament, the purpose of the Old Testament, after the fall of Adam and Eve and sin enters the world, the purpose of the Old Testament, the purpose of the law, the purpose of what the angels were delivering was to make sure that we understood that we could never achieve perfection. God set up a law and he said, you want to do it on your own? Then this is what you have to follow and what happened all the time. I mean, it's, it's crazy when you actually process it. He set up a system that said, this is the law you have to follow to be perfect, but when you don't, this is what you have to do to appease the mistakes that you make or the sin that you commit. And it was ugly. It was sacrificial. It was nasty. I mean, you study the sacrificial system, it was brutal. It was bloody and gross. And these angels are delivering this message saying, if you're not living perfect, if you're not living by the law, you're not meeting the standard of God. And the way that I translate that for me, just to make it make sense is, do I really think I'm that great? Like, Am I really in a position where I think that I can show up to God and go, let me tell you all the good I did. Like there's moments in my head where I'm like, God, you're so lucky that, I, that, that I'm on your team. Did you see what I did yesterday? Forget the kid on the bike <laughs> and remember the conversation on the tee. Did you see what I did? Nobody else would have done that. Nobody else would have sacrificed like that. Like the halo should be given to me, right? And we all have this attitude at times. What are you really going to do that's going to impress the God that can create the world in a word? 
the arrogance that we have to believe that we have the ability to impress that God is overwhelming. And the whole Old Testament is proof of it. It's proof. It's God going, fine, do it on your own. Here it is. And nobody could do it. So what happens? It's not a different God. It's not a different system. When we say that Jesus comes and lives the life that we were supposed to live, he met every standard of the law that was given. He lived it perfect. He lived the life that we're supposed to live. Scripture says he was sinless. I don't understand that because my brain can't process even a a non-sinful mind. Try to think of the, the, the person that you hold as like the most perfect person. And now try to think them never sinning. It's, not, it's impossible. He, Jesus doesn't come to abolish the law. He comes to fulfill it. He fulfilled it all. He, he set every standard. He hit that point of perfection in how he was supposed to live. And it wasn't Everybody loves Jesus. Jesus said, I've come to do the will of the Father, not my own will. I've come to glorify Him. I've come to live in obedience. I've come to do what He's asked me to do, what I desire to do. Everything that He did was perfect. I, I've thought about like, what would it have been like to raise Jesus? Dirty, rotten, sinning parents raising creator of the universe. What's worse, what would it be like to be Jesus' brother? Perfection enters the world and the response from mankind is you have to die. We don't want perfection. We want personal justification. Because when we see it, we hate it. We see this in sports a lot. The teams that are constantly winning, everybody begins to hate, right? Everybody hates the Pats. Now everybody loves the Pats because they're awful. (laughs) But there was, well, I mean, we, we have these shirts that say New England versus everyone, and it was so true, and now it's like, New England, nobody cares, right? We all hate a winner. We're all looking for the person that has been elevated up and go, I can't wait till they're brought down. Because that can't be true. It's in our nature. You'll have conversations with someone who's like, I really like this person. Really? I don't know. Right? That's not who Jesus was. Jesus was... The response to him was the same, but Jesus came and he lived the life that we were supposed to live. He, he did everything perfectly. The angels delivered this message. They're like, you've been trying to do it on your own for so long and you've failed so much that you've forgotten even what the standard is. You've drifted so far. The entire Old Testament is... It's not an experiment. I don't even like that word. It's proof of failure for human beings. It's proof of failure that we can earn our way to anything. 
Verse three says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The story of the gospel is that Jesus comes and lives the life that we were supposed to live and then dies the death that we deserve and then three days later rises conquering sin, Satan, and death forever. And he says, I will represent you. And there's a whole lot of theology here and a whole lot of doctrine and a whole lot of really fancy cool words. But ultimately, that's what it breaks down to. If you will take your faith off of yourself and you will put it in me, and stop putting it in what you're doing and start putting it in what I did and continue to do for you, then there's this exchange that happens. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. It was Jesus becomes sin for us and we become a righteousness based on what he did. The, the best way I've described this that makes sense to me is when you come to faith in Jesus and that exchange has happened, God looks at you through the filter of the blood of Jesus and he sees his son. He no longer sees somebody who has to be punished for not being perfect. We take on his righteousness. It doesn't mean we never sin because we're going to. What it does mean is that sin was already paid for. There was already a penalty. The wages of sin is death. Jesus paid it. He paid for every sin that I've ever committed and every sin I'm going to commit in the future. He paid it. And this is what the angels delivered. They're trying to say this. Like, why would you reject a faith system that's allowing you to not have to own the responsibility of being perfect when you know you can't be? Why would you choose the team that loses every game? Knowing it. Why would you step into the constant pit of this personal struggle and stress of trying to please a holy God when you know internally that you can't and just wrestle with that over and over the rest of your life? Why would you do that? From a logical standpoint, it makes no sense whatsoever. When you just look at this and you just go, if this just came down to some simple choice, look, you can try to do it on your own and you can't and you already know it. I don't have to convince that of you. It's, you already know. You're guaranteed failure. Or you can choose this and this individual does it all for you. Choose. You would have to be very simple to say, I'm going to try this on my own. Nobody logically would make that decision. But what this passage of Scripture is saying is we're constantly doing it. That we've been given this gift in Christ of being free of the burden of perfection. Jesus says, my burden is light. Why? Because in Christ, your sin has been paid for. Not only that, but it says that we're adopted into his family, that we're given the gift of the Holy Spirit, which means that if the Holy Spirit resides in every believer, then you actually have the power to never sin again, even though you won't. But you have it. Why would we not want that? I, I think this is 
attempting to break down a, a, a logical argument for us. Like, if the message is this, why are we not listening? Why are we still burdening ourselves with trying to do it on our own? Why are we still trying to carry a weight? For Christ followers, why are you still attempting to do what Jesus already accomplished? There's only two answers to that. One, you don't really believe, or two, you don't believe that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient enough for your sin. And then that's when things get painful. In Christ, you don't work for it because you can never get there. And we have ancient history reminding us of that over and over and over. When I say that the gospel is something that we're supposed to celebrate as Christ followers, one of the major celebrations that we should have every day is the freedom that you're giving in Jesus. You wake up in the morning and say, I'm not a slave to sin any longer. In Christ, I don't owe a death penalty any longer. In Christ, I have the ability to make decisions that would be glorifying to him that are outside of that. Those moments when you go arrogantly, I can't believe that I was, that I was actually did that. Instead, it changes to, Lord, I can't believe that you let me. I can't believe that you empowered me. I can't believe that you're allowing me to participate in watching you continue to change lives around me. I can't believe that I get to be a bystander even just watching it happen. It changes everything. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It's a question. You've heard it. It's not on you. It doesn't have to be on you. It's on Jesus. It's all on Him. And to refuse it is not good. It means that it's always going to be on you and it can't be on you. It won't succeed. It says, it was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. One of the things that I love about Scripture is that if you analyze it from a point of view where you're not going to be biased one way or another, you'll always lean to Jesus is true. Because nothing else makes sense. I don't, it's talking about the, the witnesses that were there, the apostles, and I, I think of the apostles, and I wanna say this delicately. The apostles weren't smart. Jesus didn't pick the cream of the crop. He wasn't like, all right, we set out a test and I'm gonna pick the top scores. He seemed to pick the people that would have failed every test that they were ever given, right? He, he picked sailors, right? Now, if you're a sailor, thank you. But back in the day, sailors didn't necessarily have the best reputation. Why? Because they would pull into a port and wreak havoc. And some of you were like, yeah, that's what we do, right? They, you didn't have to be fully educated to catch fish. You didn't have to go to school. You didn't have to have a clean life. In fact, the dirtier life, the better because it's dirty work. 
The people that Jesus chose weren't this dream team. He didn't pick the dream team. He picked people that you go, I don't even know that these people want to be in the same room together. One of them is a Sakari Zealot. I don't know if you know anything about this. Sakari Zealot's an assassin. They were actually like had covenanted, they would carry a knife in their robes, and if they saw a Roman official, it was their duty to kill the Roman official. This is one that Jesus picked. One of them was a tax collector who, across the board, was considered traitor to their country because of the way that it worked. On and on, fishermen. Individuals who weren't great. And it's fascinating because as Jesus begins to give them this message, and they begin to look. In Scripture, they're failing constantly. Like, I love that about Scripture. Because it would be awful if you're like, well, these people met Jesus, and all of a sudden they lived this perfect life, and I'm going, I can't seem to do that. They're, they're always failing. Peter, he's always putting his foot in his mouth. He's always saying the wrong thing. Every, every time there's an opportunity for Peter to speak that I can think of except one, he says the wrong thing. Every time. And he's always chastised, chastised by Jesus in front of everybody else. <laughs> there comes a point where after Jesus' ascension, so he's gone, and it says that the Holy Spirit, we sang about this, filled the apostles, and Peter stands up and he begins to preach and the church is born, that he's getting arrested because of what he's saying. And this is the reasoning that's given to us in Scripture. I'm nervous that what he's saying is true because he's not educated enough to make this up. That's crazy to think about. Paul talks about this. He says the foolishness of what we see as foolishness is what glorifies God. The foolishness of the gospel itself. The foolishness of who he actually even chooses to use. In the Old Testament, God speaks through a donkey. Why? You know why? So that he reminds me he doesn't need me. As Jesus is walking into, or on, the, on another donkey, walking into Jerusalem, he literally, like the, all of these people are going, stop, stop, Rome's over there, and we're going to get in trouble. And all Jesus says is, you know what? If they stop yelling and praising me, the rocks are going to cry out. Like, Jesus doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. The rocks will cry out. Things that can't even, like a donkey, which we know aren't the most intelligent animals, will be used to declare the glory of the Lord. The apostles weren't great. They weren't these perfect, educated men. Yet they all died for a lie then. Like, help me make that make sense. It doesn't make sense to me. That you would take these individuals who didn't really get along and didn't really understand and they were all martyred but one and one was exiled to the island of Patmos where he didn't live a great life and not one of them ever came back and said, you know what, we just made the story up. Who dies for a lie? Like, I love that in Scripture. And that's what it's describing. It's, it's, it's asking us to think logically about this, the, the information that's been given. It doesn't make sense if it's not true. 
Are you, would you die for a lie? One of my one of the interesting stories in Christian culture is a story of a guy named Chuck Colson. I don't know if you've ever read his story. Chuck Colson is the founder of um, a prison ministry. And he was um, on the president's board during Watergate. And we all know that if you know your history, hopefully you know that wasn't a great thing. And he was... He was considered the hatchet man. He was the one that did all of the the hard stuff and he ended up going to jail for it and came to Christ in jail. And if you read his story, one of the reasons that he'll tell you that he chose to believe without question is not because it was a fairy tale, but he said, "I, I was in the room with 12 of the most powerful men in the world and after we did what we did, we every one of us looked each other in the eye and swore that none of us would ever say what actually happened. And he said it took 24 hours. Within a short period of time, the rumors began to spread. People started covering themselves because they weren't gonna die for a lie. They weren't going down for something that wasn't true. And he said, when I compared that to scriptures like this and looked at the apostles, if 12 of the most powerful men in the room and in the world at that time were not able to keep a secret and not willing to go down for a lie, how is it possible that people like the apostles would? And in his mind, logically, he went, it has to be true. It has to be. Because I've experienced it. Nobody would do that. There's so much proof and evidence in the Scriptures that are reminding us of the validity of what's been delivered to us. The coolest thing about Scripture overall is not just the story of Jesus, but it's the story of each one of us because it defines us so well. When you read Scripture, you're like, wow, how does it know? How does it know that's what I'm thinking about? How does it know that I have the ability to have a slow fade? How does it do this? And how does it provide an answer that I really, like in my heart of hearts, it requires me so much effort to go, I have to let go of what I think I can accomplish for my own salvation. And say that it's all about Him and He's going to receive all the glory and I have nothing. This is the Gospel. This is what makes Jesus supreme. Because nobody else can do this. And nobody else will, and you can't. It eliminates everything in saying it's dependent upon you, go work for it, and even though I don't tell you a standard, good luck. We'll see how it works out at the end. It literally says and reminds us you can't and you know it. So you need somebody to do it for you. And Jesus is the only one that has. He's the only one that can. But what makes the gospel even more beautiful is the freedom that it gives us. The freedom to put that worry aside. The freedom to be assured that because it's not based on you, but based on something so perfect as Jesus, there's freedom in that. There's assurance in it. There's beauty in it.
couple of things just to finish. Some of you are still attempting to do it on your own. And here's the thing. Some of you are capable of good things. In fact, some of you are capable of great things. Some of you, your experience is when I put my head down and go after it, it seems to succeed. Praise God. Some of you are such hard workers that you just go, I've, in my life, I've experienced that if I work hard enough, I will eventually get to where I want to go. It's one of the greatest dangers, I guess, is buying into your own capabilities and trying to apply that to salvation. Well, it'll work out. I'll work harder. It doesn't work that way. It's Jesus or nothing. You're not good enough. You can't work hard enough. Some of you have hit rock bottom to a point where you go, there is no hope. I'm on my knees. I feel like I'm on my face. I don't know how I got here, but I don't even know what to do. And I feel like I'm on this wheel where it just constantly is about me and everything I try seems to fail. You're the exact opposite of what I've described before. And you know that you can't do it. But your greatest weakness in looking at the gospel is saying, why would a God that created such an amazing world want anything to do with me when I'm down this low? I'm going to give you the same answer because it has nothing to do with you. The gospel isn't grounded in circumstances. The gospel isn't grounded in the choices that you've made in your life. The gospel is grounded in Jesus Christ. That he lived the life that you were supposed to. He died the death you deserve and he conquered sin, Satan, and death for you. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter where, what successes you've had or what failures you've had. It doesn't matter what your emotional baggage is. It doesn't matter how many broken relationships you have. It doesn't matter if you're a millionaire or a billionaire. Everybody is in the same boat. None of us can accomplish our salvation, and Jesus did it. This is what makes the church beautiful. A bunch of people like the apostles who come from different backgrounds, different successes, different failures, different cultures, all saying our anchor's the same thing and our hope is in Jesus alone. I just want to say, if that's you and you're still trying to work for it, you can stop today. You don't have to work for it anymore. You can come to faith in Christ and experience all of the beauty of the gospel that I've just expressed. It's just a matter of transferring faith and trust. So here's what you do. You're like, well, what do I do? Well, you can talk to somebody. You can come talk to me if you want to, but it doesn't have to be me. Turn to the person next to you and say, do you know Jesus? And if they say yes, say, can we get some coffee? I have some questions. 
Let them walk you through it. Don't leave here trying to do it on your own. You're not built that way. And you will continue to fail. For those of you who are Christ followers and you say, well, I gave my life to Jesus a long time ago and if I look at my life, it doesn't really reflect it or I'm a new believer. If you've come to faith in Christ, then you believe that you can't do it. But the question is, are you still living like you can? Are you still the hustler? Are you still declaring a declaration of independence instead of a declaration of dependence? However you want to say it. Are you really living a life that's showing that Jesus is supreme? Or have you put other things ahead of it? Money, success, power, friends, relationships, vacations, what I don't, I don't know. Pain. Are you, do you believe that Jesus has the power to heal you from anything? Or have you given up? Maybe you're looking at your life now and you're going, there has been this slow fade. Like it's this moment right here where I'm realizing when I analyze my life from a year ago to now, it's faded. So what's my, what's my solution for you? There's few things in Scripture that are given to us that help us stay and pay attention. And the first one is this. If you claim to be a Christ follower and you're not in this, you're not reading this, if your diet of Scripture is coming to hear me preach, you're in trouble. That's not enough. If you're not in this, constantly filling your head with truth about who you are and who Jesus is, I promise you, you will fade. If you're not in fellowship with other believers who are challenging you to think differently and love you regardless, you will fade. There's all kinds of excuses. Well, have you seen my schedule? I can't get into the Word. Our church is full of hypocrites. We've already talked about that. Whatever it is, you're in danger to fade. Is that you? If it is, then this is an invitation to reground yourself back in Christ. And it's not hard. It's just... It's just doing it. We're going to do every week at Church at the Well, we take communion. There's communion elements there, and there's communion elements there. And every week, somebody takes communion poorly (laughs) because they think that they've come to a church and they're going to do something religious and the Lord's going to smile. And I hope, after all of this, that you realize that that's not how this works. So let's just get rid of all the facade. You're sitting in a coffee house. There's really nothing holy about this place. Right? You're about to drink grape juice that was purchased at CVS. The crackers are stale. There's nothing mystical here. The purpose of communion is to remind those who believe 
that Jesus is the answer all of the time. The permanent answer. It's to be reminded that if we're going to make changes in our life, that it has to take place at the foot of the cross. It's to be reminded of what he paid for us to even be able to walk up and grab the juice. As a, if you're not a Christ follower, to be really honest, this means nothing to you. You're not even going to get a full belly out of it. You're going to get bad breath. This isn't designed to be something religious that you benefit from. It's designed to be a personal expression of something that symbolizes what goes on in your heart. And if you're an individual who says, I have faded, then it's a reminder that you don't have to be an individual that faded because of what Jesus did on the cross. For some of you, you need to take communion today and celebrate like you've never celebrated before because when you evaluate your life, you're like, right now, I am grounded. And it's a reminder that it has nothing to do with you and everything to do with him still. And we praise him for that. Thank you, Lord, for giving me the grace to stay grounded, to stay firm. Some of you need to take communion and repent. Lord, there's this thing that's going on in my life and maybe nobody even knows that it's there. But you do because you see it all. And I know that it's forgiven in Christ and in, by your grace, the chain has been cut and if I lean into you and you're my anchor, then I can get through this and it'll go away and we can conquer it together. But it's a reminder of that. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, then all I'm going to ask is that you don't partake because I do not want you leaving here with a false hope. If that's you and you're going, but I need to respond to something, well, then I'll stand over here and you can come talk to me. If the Holy Spirit's doing something in here and it just, I, I got to do something, then talk to somebody. But don't fake it anymore. God's not impressed. So I don't know what the Holy Spirit's doing, but I do know that the gospel's amazing. And I know that Jesus loves you. And I know that he wants to draw you closer to him. The question is, will you let him? The girls are going to come up. We're going to sing another song, and the elements will be here for you to partake whenever you are ready. But let me pray. God, thank you for your word. Lord, what makes your word interesting is how convicting and hopeful it is at the same time. Sometimes the things that are said to us are hard to hear. Lord, I, I confess I don't like the idea that I can't do anything about it. But I'm grateful. I'm grateful that it's not dependent upon me. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room right now who has never given their lives to Jesus. Lord, they're on this wheel that's exhausting and they're trying to do it on their own and they're trying to meet a standard that they can never meet. And I pray that you would break that pattern right now. That you would remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh and give them the faith to believe in you. Lord, free them. I beg you, Lord, that no one would leave this space not knowing you personally. And Lord, for your church, Lord, help us be vigilant and watchful. 
Surround us with people that love us enough to tolerate us and put up with us and even when we're fading, Lord, and draw us back. Lord, help us be that for other people. I pray right now that you would create a church in this little tiny area here, Lord, that is just filled with joy and hope and love and overwhelmed amazement of what you've done and continue to do. So Lord, anyone in here who has been fading, who's beginning to take back up the mantle of trying to work for it or taking a burden that you've never asked them to take, Lord, would you just allow them the freedom right now to release that? Lord, we're grateful that you don't leave us where we are. And we thank you for that. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.